Father, we just thank you for just the assurance we have in Jesus Christ, the protection we have in Jesus Christ, Lord. Uh, we live in a very, very troubling world, and uh, as we look around this world, we can, we can feel the breezes of the winds of war about to blow on this earth, Lord, and uh, it just seems that everywhere things are, uh, are heating up, and Lord, at any moment, this, this next great war can break out. And Lord, I, I, I believe that's more than likely the war that will begin during the Great Tribulation. So we're really close, Lord. Help us, help us to get a sense of urgency as we look at these passages, as we dig through Revelation. Help us to realize that we're living in the time of the very end, just before your coming, Lord. And we want to be like those virgins who had their lamps lit with oil, Lord, and full of oil so that, so that they could shine during, during that time of your coming. And, Lord, we want to shine uh, as you're about to approach. We want to plant as many seeds as possible before you take us home to be with you. And so, Lord, help us to, to look at this lesson today and, and uh, apply it to our own lives. And, and again, uh, we just thank you for the fact that our lives are so full of, of peace and joy uh, only because of what you've done for us on the cross. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Now, imagine yesterday being in Hawaii on vacation, and you get an emergency alert on your phone, and this is what it says. Ballistic missile incoming to Hawaii, take immediate shelter, this is not a drill. That alert actually went out, most of you know, to the Hawaiians yesterday and all the visitors who were on those islands, uh, and it turned out to be a false alert. But just imagine if that had been real. I mean, just imagine for a moment that while I'm preaching here that you get an alert on your phone to let us know that ballistic missiles are on their way to the United States of America. Now, the reason that happened isn't because it's not possible for it to happen. The reason that happened because it's a very likely scenario somewhere in the future. Those people live very close to North Korea, and North Korea is threatening to bomb Hawaii. And when North Korea bombs Hawaii, we're going to go into World War III. Personally, I don't believe when we go into World War III that the church is going to be here, but because, and that's what we're going to see in our lesson today, because before that happens, the church is going to be raptured out of here. And God is going to take care of his people. And that's the only thing that's holding back these winds of war now. That's the only thing that's holding back World War III now. And that's what we're going to see as we look at our lesson today uh, in Revelation chapter number 7. So if you will, turn to chapter 7. You've always wondered who the 144,000 were. I'm going to tell you who they are today. You're going to get to figure that out, and, and hopefully you'll leave here without any doubts, and I'm one of them, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. No, I'm not. All right, and 
Let's go to Revelation chapter 7, verse number 1. Look at what's happening here. We can time this, this, this chapter very, fairly easily, you're going to see, as, as we look at this. So look with me in chapter number 7, beginning down in verse number 1. John says, after these things, he says, after these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, and that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Now, first of all, if you look here, when John says here, after these things, he's not referring to the next event in time, and I'm going to show you that here in just a second. What he's referring to is the next vision that he sees. This vision takes place, actually, the events of this vision take place before the first six seals are even open. And so the timing of this is sometime before the first six seals are open. And let me tell you what the timing of this vision is. The timing of this vision is the time in which we live right now. What John sees is what's going on in the earth right now before the great tribulation begins. And what he sees, look what he sees. He sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding the four winds. Now that number four is significant. In, in biblical symbolism and numerology, the number four refers to the world and it refers to judgment. And so what, there's this worldwide judgment coming and there's something holding it back. What's holding it back? What's holding it back are these four angels sent by God to hold it back. And he's got a reason for holding it back, and we're going to see that. Now, that word there that you see in the text for holding is a very strong Greek word. It implies that there's an intense struggle going on, that these angels are having to do everything they can possibly do to keep this wind from blowing on this earth. And this wind that's coming to this earth is the wind of war. And because we know that, because this war is going to come and it's going to harm the earth and it's going to harm this world. Now, you just look around the world. I don't know if you've got your head in the sand or not. But you, we talked about this just a second ago. You look at what's going on in North Korea. That idiot over there could fire a missile at any moment at the United States of America. He could invade South Korea at any moment. And if he does that, the United States has promised to go in and help South Korea, and Russia and China have promised to help uh, North Korea. And so there's going to be a world war that's going to break out. I don't believe we'll be here when that happens. I, 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 would, I would doubt that we we're going we to be here when that happens. You look at the Russians right now. The Russians have massed hundreds and of thousands of troops on the European borders, they are set to invade whenever this war breaks out. You look at the Chinese. The Chinese are running their ships and their planes right on the, off the coast of Taiwan, and they're threatening at any moment to invade Taiwan. And if they invade Taiwan, the United States is going to come to the aid of Taiwan, and we're going to have a. And Russia's going to come to the aid of China, and we're going to have a war, world war. World War Three will break out. And, I mean, you look at what's going on in just north of Israel and all of those nations that are amassing their armies north of Israel, Iran and Syria, 
and Russia right there on the Israeli border threatening to invade Israel at any moment. And these angels are holding all of this back. How they are doing that, I don't know. But it's not going to happen until God allows it to happen. That's why I don't worry too much about this guy in North Korea. That's why if I'd gotten that text yesterday, I just would have said, that's, that's, that's not happening because I'm not going to be here when I, or when I'm going to be looking up because I'm, God's about to take me out of here before those missiles land. And so, so uh, uh, God is holding all of this back. And this world, let me tell you, this world is a powder keg ready to explode. And when it explodes, I believe that this earth is going to go into the great tribulation. Now, look at verse number two. He says in verse number two, he says, uh, well, let me say one thing before I, before I get to verse number two. Why is God holding it all back? I mean, Lord, I just assume you take me on up and let what's going to happen happen so the Lord can return and he can rule and reign on this earth and all of these things will be over with for us. But he's got a reason, and that's what we're going to be looking at next. His reason is he's calling out the elect. He's calling out the elect of Israel, and he's calling out the elect of the church. He's calling out his chosen ones. And he is going to position these 144,000 throughout the earth during the Great Tribulation. And that's happening right now. They're being positioned. How he's doing that and who they are, I, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But he's also getting his church ready to call his church home. And so these two things are, are going to have to happen before World War III breaks out. Now, I, I say that. There's a possibility that we could have another great war before the great war of the Great Tribulation, but I don't believe so. I believe that this next war is going to involve nuclear missiles, and when those nuclear missiles fly, you're going to see all of these trumpets being blown. You're going to see all these terrible things happening to the earth, and then uh, we're going to be in the Great Tribulation. But pick up with me down verse number 2. He says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. Now, he's holding the seal of the living God for a reason. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Now, these are the same four angels that are holding back these armies from invading each other and creating this war. And so they're the same angels that, that, that are holding it back are the angels that he says to them, he says, uh, they're granted to harm the earth and the sea. Now, how can they harm the earth and the sea? All they have to do is quit restraining all of these powers to be. And the minute they quit restraining, let me tell you what, that idiot in North Korea would invade South Korea tomorrow if he thought he could get away with it. Russia would attack the United States tomorrow if they thought they could get away with it. it, it they, they probably can get away with it. They probably can hit us with a surprise attack that will destroy the United States of America. But God's not going to let them do that until he's ready to allow them to do that, until he's done the things that he wants to do before the great tribulation begins. And so he says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having a seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to these four angels, Hey, don't let go. Because when they let go... They have the power when they let go to harm the earth and the sea. 
And listen to what he says to them in verse number 3. He says, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of, God, of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now, we know that this sealing takes place just before the beginning of the Great Tribulation because there's no harming of the earth or the sea at this point. And so they're going to be sealed before the Great Tribulation, uh, just before the Great Tribulation begins. And, and when the Great Tribulation begins, he says, hey, don't harm the earth and the sea until, I, until we have these 144,000 sealed. But once they're sealed, then this, the earth and the sea and the trees, we'll see all of this as we look at the trumpets and the bowls, it's, there's going to be catastrophic damage that takes place on this earth. Terrible damage. The tribulation, as Jesus said, like none other before nor shall ever be. And except for the, uh, the sake of the elect, the whole earth would be destroyed during the great tribulation if it weren't for the grace of God. Now, the 144,000. Everybody's heard about the 144,000. And so we need to answer some basic questions about just, uh, well, in general, about these 144,000. I've got five questions that I want to answer for you today. Where are they? Where are they? I can give you an answer here in just a minute. How are they sealed? That's the second question. Why are they sealed? That's the third question. The fourth question, and here's the one everybody came here for today, who are they? Who are they? And the fifth question that is an interesting question, what do they do? What do they do during the Great Tribulation? What do they do? Well, the first question is this, where are they? Where are they? Where are they? You can figure out real easily where they're at because God says don't harm the earth or the sea until they're sealed. So where are they? They're on the earth. He's saying don't harm the earth because they're there. So we know that they're on the earth during the great tribulation because he gives them this seal. Now, how are they sealed? Well, we know from Revelation chapter 14 that the name of God is stamped on their forehead. Now, I don't think that's a literal stamp. Maybe it is. What's the name of God? Yahweh, Jehovah. It, the name of God is stamped on their forehead. That's how they're sealed. Now, I think that's maybe a spiritual stamp. Maybe the Spirit of God glows from them, whatever. From some, but for some reason, the name of God is stamped on their forehead. So that's how they're sealed. All right, now, why are they sealed? Well, you actually get the answer to that question from the answer to the second question, how they're sealed. Why are they sealed? They're sealed because they have the name of God, Yahweh, on their head. And what does that tell you? That they're God's people. You better not mess with them. If you mess with them, God's going to mess with you. And if you try to mess with them, there's nothing you're going to be able to do to them because God's got his seal on them. He's got his seal on their forehead. So they're protected through the great tribulation. So, so th that's uh, why they're sealed. 
And, uh, and they're going to go through the Great Tribulation, and God is going to protect them during the Great Tribulation. Well, here's the, the million-dollar question. Who are they? Well, I told you when we started this, I'm one of them. Brandon says he's one of them. Ron is not one of them, and, and Roy is certainly not one of them. I'm telling you. I'm, in fact, I've been put in charge of picking the 144,000, so you need to be very nice to me if you want to be one of the 144,000. Now, you laugh at that, and I am joking, but there are all sorts of people who claim to be part of the 144,000, and they claim to have the right to pick the 144,000. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons throughout their history at one time or the other have claimed to be the 144,000. They're upper echelon now. They claim to be the 144,000. Herbert Armstrong, uh, the world of the World Tomorrow program, and his followers claim to be the 144,000. Uh, the Christian Skoptis uh, in Russia, they claim that their whole function is to pick the 144,000, and when they pick the 144,000, that the Messiah will come. Uh, the Unification Church, have you heard of that? Of, of Sun, Moon, uh, Sun Yun Moon, whatever his name is. I'm getting his name wrong. But he claims that his group is the 144,000, that he's been chosen to elect the 144,000. The Muslims even get in on this. They claim that there are 144,000 prophets in Islam. 144,000 prophets. The New Agers even get on this. That most New Age cults believe that when the earth is destroyed through some great calamity, that they're going to be, there's going to be 144,000 New Agers left on this earth to repopulate the earth. There's these, these groups, you remember the group that when Halley's Comet came that they, were, they, were, uh, they committed suicide? They believed that they were part of the 144,000. Let me tell you what, I've been pastoring now for, for, for almost 20 years, and, and I've met all sorts of evangelical Christians who told me that they were sure that they were one of the 144,000. They seriously believed that. But anybody that says that, let me tell you what, they're delusional and they're unscriptural. They're not part of the 144,000, and I want to show you that. Look at the last part of verse number 4. You think maybe God could be any clearer than this? Who are they? They are the children of Israel. What's, who are the children of Israel? All you Greek scholars, they're the children of Israel. That's who they are. And the Lord even names the tribes that they come, come from. Well, you know, I hear that argument. Here's the argument. You, you can't name the tribes from where the, they come from because in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed and all the uh, records were destroyed, all the genealogies were destroyed, and so no Jew knows from which tribe he comes from. They, no Jew can be certain from which tribe he comes from. Let me tell you what, no Jew can be certain, but God can be certain. God knows where every Jew is on this earth, and he knows which tribe each one of them comes from. So, so uh, he certainly knows, and he names the tribes. Look at this. Let's read these verses. 
Of the tribe of Judah, there are 12,000 who were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. I mean, God's trying to make a point here. If, you, if you're catching this, for all those people who say this isn't Israel, of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Not only does he tell us the tribe, he tells us exactly how many from each tribe are going to be sealed. Now, how many are going to be sealed? 12,000. 12,000 times 12 is what? 144,000. Now, if it were 10,000 from the tribe of Judah that were going to be sealed, what would God have written down there? 10,000. He would have had John write 10,000. If it were 12,001 from the tribe of Reuben, how many would he have written down? 12,001. But it's 12,000 from 12 tribes, and it's 144,000. And that number's really interesting to me. Because that tells me, because it is a round number, an exact round number, an equal number for every tribe, that God has chosen these people, not by accident. He has chosen them for his purposes. And they're clearly not part of the church, because if you look at the next part of this vision, look who he sees. He says, after these things, look at verse number 9, he says, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes. Who is this? And palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now here's the church in heaven, and here are these 144,000 Jews, and where are they? They're on earth. And so that's who the 144,000 are. They're 144,000 Jews. Now I say that, and in many, many evangelical denominations today, they will tell you that this 144,000 are people of the church, including a few Jews, but mainly Gentiles, who make up spiritual Israel. Now, I don't see anything here about this being spiritual Israel. And they'll say these are not Jews by race, that they are more than likely Gentiles. Now, that kind of teaching is based upon a false doctrine that we talked about on several occasions. It's called replacement theology. This idea that God is through with the Jews and that all the promises that were made to Israel have been passed on to the church. There, there's no place for that in the Bible. You cannot find that in the Bible. Now we are part of the 
children of Abraham. So we're called the spiritual Israel. The church is called that, but there's also the literal, physical Israel. And this theology, this replacement theology, let me tell you what, it's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. We've seen it throughout church history. The, one of the, some of the great so-called church fathers, one like Origen, Origen in the third century. Let me tell you what, Origen is one of the biggest heretics who ever lived. But he taught this replacement theology. In the third century, Augustine, who some, for some reason evangelicals love, but Augustine, let me tell you what, he was one of the big founders of the Catholic Church. Augustine taught replacement theology. And here's what's really kind of scary. Martin Luther, who uh, many consider the father of the Reformation, he was big on replacement theology. He hated the Jews. He called for the destruction of the Jews on several occasions. And no wonder it was Luther's Germany who orchestrated a near annihilation of the Jewish population because it was ratified by the greatest reformer ever, supposedly, Martin Luther. And here's what's happening today. Lots of mainstream denominations. I can name you just a couple. The United Church of Christ, uh, United Methodist Church, Presbyterian USA. They have all, and, and that doesn't include all the reformed denominations. They've all claimed that Israel is has lost all of their privileges. They, they agree with this replacement theology uh, that they lost it when they killed Jesus and Israel was destroyed in 70 A.D. and God has nothing else to do with a Jew unless they become Christians. Guys like Piper teach this. I'm talking about a lot of mainstream people that, that I shouldn't have named names, but he teaches it. I'm just saying he teaches it. Whether you like John Piper or not, that's your business, but, but that, he's big on replacement theology. And that's really scary to me. Because now they're calling for this BDS movement, this boycott, divestment, and sanctions. The same thing they did with South Africa. Maybe that was justified in South Africa, but it's not justified against Israel. And they're calling for this. And that's where, and they're calling for it because they don't believe that the Jews have a right to the land, that the Palestinians have a right to the land, and that we're to do everything we can to get the Jews kicked out of Israel. Now, I don't know what Bible they're reading. Because I, that is a dangerous theology if you read your Bible. Mine says, my Bible says, that God made a covenant with the Jews, with the Jews pertaining to his relationship with them, and it is an unconditional, everlasting covenant. And it includes the part about the land. Now, we've been here before, but let me show you. Go with me over to Psalms chapter 105. Psalms 105. Listen to, listen to what is said about the Lord our God. In Psalms 105, I'm going to pick up in verse number 8. He remembers his covenant for a while as long as it's convenient for him. What's that say? forever the word which he commanded for how many generations a thousand generations forever the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it 
to Jacob for a statue. And listen to what he says, to Israel as a what? Everlasting covenant, saying to you I will give what? The land of Canaan. For how long? Everlasting. It's an everlasting covenant. That is the covenant of the land right there. Saying to you, I will give you the land of Canaan as an allotment of your inheritance forever. Forever. It's everlasting. And so, God doesn't remember his covenant because they did their part. He remembers his covenant because he has unconditional love for Israel. And he's true to them. He's true to his word, even though they aren't true to him. And that's exactly what Paul says. Flip with me over to the book of Romans, back into the New Testament. Pass the Gospels and go to the book of Romans. And look with me, beginning in verse number 11. Look with me in verse, beginning in verse number 11. I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse number 25. Go to chapter 11, verse 25. He says, For I do not desire, brother, that you should be ignorant, that you should be stupid and dumb, these people who talk about Israel not under a covenant with God any longer, they're stupid. They're ignorant. It, they're blatantly ignorant. They're willfully ignorant is the word I'm looking for. Of this mystery. Now here's the mystery. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. In other words, let me be blunt here. Those people who teach replacement theology are wise in their own opinion. They twist and turn Scripture. Instead of reading Scripture as it's given to it, they twist and, they twist and turn Scripture. You know, I get tired of people. I get really tired of people who tell me that things are different from the way they read in the Bible because they've been taught that way. Well, I've always been taught. I don't care what you've been taught. One of the best things you can do is get the Bible out and read the whole thing for yourself. Because you could have, you, you could, you could have been in the wrong Sunday school class your whole life or the wrong church your whole life. You need to be a Berean and you need to look at this word and not be wise in your own opinion, but look at what the word has to say literally, primarily, sometimes spiritually and symbolically, but primarily, literally, what does the Bible say? And not be wise in your own opinion, and don't be so stubborn. And so, so these people are stubborn. And they're, you know what it is? It is pride. I know better than God knows. I know better, better than the Bible teaches. That's nothing more than pride. And here's the mystery. He says, he says don't be ignorant of the mystery. And here's the mystery that he's trying to show these people that God's not done with Israel. Blindness in part has happened to Israel. That's the mystery. Blindness has happened. What do you mean blindness has happened to them? Blindness in the fact that they can't see Jesus Christ. 
They don't understand who Jesus Christ is. You can't get them to understand who Jesus Christ is because God has made them blind. And unless somehow God gives you the power to open their eyes, you're not going to open their eyes. They're blind. They're blind to the gospel, and they're blind to Jesus Christ. All they see is Torah. You talk to an Orthodox Jew, and all they see is Torah. Now listen to what he says. Until, now we're getting a timing on this. Paul, in Paul's day, they were still blind. Because he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So see, God is working in a dispensation right now where he's working with the Gentiles. He's saving the Gentile church. Now, there are a few Jews getting saved along with those Gentiles, but primarily God is dealing with the Gentiles right now. And until he's done with the Gentiles, then Israel is going to be blind. You can't save an Israelite. It's almost impossible. God can. It's impossible for us, but nothing's impossible for God. And, And then he goes on and he says, and so at some point, All of Israel will be saved. At some point, they're all going to be saved as it is written. Now, notice he says Israel and not Abraham. He says Israel because we're part of the Abrahamic covenant. Israel is Jacob, Jacob who had the 12 tribes. He's speaking of a literal Israel here. And you you really got to be ignorant, stubborn, and prideful to think he's talking about anybody else. So he says, and so all of Israel will be saved as it is written. When will they be saved? Let me tell you when they will be saved. Well, we know from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, that when God, Jesus Christ, returns to this earth, he will pour out his spirit on the Jews, and the Jews will be saved at that point. Because because when, he tells us when. He's quoting from Isaiah 59. He says, the deliverer will come out of Zion, out of heavenly Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. They're not going to be, they're ungodly right now. They think they're godly, but they're ungodly in God's eyes. They are enemies of God. The only reason they're not destroyed is that they're God's chosen people. And so the, when are they going to get saved? When Jesus Christ, the deliverer, comes down from heavenly Zion, and he pours out his spirit on these Jews. And he will turn away the ungodliness from Jacob, from the tribes of Jacob. For this is my covenant with them. How long is that covenant we saw in Psalm 105? It is everlasting. It is everlasting. It is unconditional. When when they get really turned into good people, then I'm going to do this, the Lord says. No. Look at what he says next. When I take away their sins, when I do it, unconditionally, they don't have to do anything for this to happen. I'm going to do it for them. Now, in the meantime, this is what Paul says about the Jews. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies. Enemies for your sake. You know, I, I can see through it. Hopefully you can too. But I hear about all this love between the evangelical church and Israel and how much we all love each other. Look, I believe the evangelical church, the real church does love Israel. But let me tell you what, it is not reciprocal. The Jews like us because we send money over there. 
We send tourists over there. We protect them. We lobby for their protection with the United States of America. But let me tell you what, if you've ever had any experience, and I have had experience with these people, go tell an Orthodox Jew about how much you love Jesus. He'll look at you like he wants to kill you. He hates Jesus. He loves what you're doing for him. But he hates Jesus. And they spit on the name of Jesus. Jesus to them is still accursed. He's a criminal that they crucified. And they still think they were justified in crucifying him. And they're looking for a Messiah, anybody but Jesus. So they're enemies. Deep down inside, they're enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Why does God love the Israelites who hate us? He loves them because of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and that unconditional promise, and those promises, rather, that he made to them. And then one of my favorite verses in the Bible, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, for the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Thank goodness they're irrevocable. That's how I know I'm eternally secure because God called me to salvation. Friends, I was doing everything I could to destroy myself when God called me to salvation. He chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world to be a child of God. And my salvation is His work. My sanctification is His work. And my glorification is his work. And he who began a good work in me will complete it until the end. And let me tell you this. If he could break his unconditional promises to Israel, then he could break his unconditional promises to me. Because I'm not good enough. You might be good enough to keep your salvation, but I'm not good enough. I fail every Day. I fell almost every moment of the day. You, if you knew the things I thought, you wouldn't even be listening to me right now. And you know the reverse of that. If I knew the things you thought, I wouldn't be teaching you right now. We are all depraved sinners. The heart is desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. The Lord says. We're all, we're, none of us would make it if these promises were conditional. But they're not conditional. Now, the reason I went through all of those theological gymnastics there is because at the root of these wild interpretations as to who the 144,000 are is this replacement theology. This idea that somehow we're superior to the Jews. Somehow that we aren't as treacherous as the Jews. Let me tell you something. You had just as much part of putting the Lord on that cross as those Jews did. Every single one of us did. We're just as treacherous as they were. And more than likely, if we were there, we would have said, crucify him, crucify him, just like they did. We're no different. We're human beings just like they're human beings. And we're depraved sinners until Christ saves us and regenerates us. 
We're not superior to the Jew, and that's, that's nothing more than pride. When we say we are, that somehow, well, I'm one of the 144,000. Or the evangelicals are going to be, you know, we're going to be one of the 144,000. We're not the 144,000. The Jews are the 144,000. And they're sealed by grace. They're sealed totally by grace. Now, going back to this, the identity of these tribes is really interesting here if you look at this in detail. If you've looked at it and, 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 and uh, uh, noticed those names, you see three differences there. There's two tribes missing. Who's missing, all you scholars? Dan is missing. Samson's tribe. Dan is missing. Who else is missing? Ephraim. Ephraim's missing and Dan's missing. And somebody's on the list that's not normally on the list. Two are on the list that aren't normally on the list. There's two names on the list, two tribes' names that are on the list that aren't normally on the list. Can you tell which tribe those are? Joseph. Joseph's not normally on the list. And who else? Who? Benjamin, why would you keep Benjamin out? <laughs> Levi. Levi. Levi's not normally on the list. And so there's some differences here. Now, if you want to know what those differences are, for sure, don't ask me. You're asking the wrong person. That, that's one of those questions I think will get answered when we get to heaven. I mean, this is one of those areas where the critics, they, they pounce on it. I mean, they pounce on it because, oh, look at here. Here's another one of those uh, inconsistencies in the Bible. But don't let that bother you. In the Old Testament alone, there are 18 different listings of the 12 tribes. 18 different listings where the tribes are different. 18 different ways. So this isn't a surprise here. God, usually you can figure out why they're different. Uh, God has his reasons for listing the tribes differently. But Ephraim's here. So Ephraim's here. So really you could say, I mean, I mean I'm sorry, Joseph is here. So jo Ephraim was a son of Joseph. So you could say, well, Ephraim's included in that. Dan's missing. And I, I really, that's really, uh, really surprising to me that Dan would be missing in this list. Uh, a lot of scholars believe that Dan and Ephraim are missing because they were the two tribes that led uh, Israel into idolatry. Well, again, I don't know what Bible they're reading because it looked to me like every tribe was going into idolatry. They didn't have, need any help at all. I mean, that, maybe they were the most idolatrous tribe, but all of the tribes were idolatrous. All of them. All of them were idolatrous. You know, I personally think that the reason those are the tribes that are listed, listed because those are the only, God knows where those Jews are, and there aren't any, any Jews left from the tribe of Dan at this point. They've all passed on. There aren't any, any Jews left from the tribe of Ephraim. That, that might be the reason. We don't know again, and we won't find out. Now, here's the one thing we're sure of. When you get to Ezekiel, and the land is redistributed after the Great Tribulation, all 12 tribes are there, including Dan and Ephraim. And then Levi's not on the list, and Joseph's not on the list. And so they're all going to be there in the end, but these 12,000 Jews that are on the earth, for some reason, are these 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, these 12,000 from Dan and Ephraim aren't listed because they're not there. They're not chosen. And why they aren't chosen, we can't be sure, but maybe because there's just not any left. There's just not any of those from those tribes left. 
Now, with all of that said, the fifth question, the last question. What do these 144,000 do during the Great Tribulation? Without looking at your Bible, who can tell me? What do they do? Who are they? What do they do during the Great Tribulation? What are they? Witnesses. How many people say witnesses? Raise your hand. Maybe, maybe. Most people say that they're, they're called often the 144,000 witnesses. I call them the 144,000 witnesses all the time for years. And I remember one day I was talking about something else and I brought up the 144,000 witnesses. I wasn't in Revelation. And Manuel Brito, y'all remember Manuel Brito? He visited a couple weeks ago. He used to come to church here. Really nice guy. He wasn't nice that day. I mean, he came up to me. He had the nerve to question me. He came up to me and he said, George, why do you call them the 144,000 witnesses? I said, well, that's what the Bible says. There's 144,000 witnesses. He said, I don't think that's in the Bible. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing here? <laughs> and so I checked afterwards. Man, I don't like being corrected like that, but I checked and I looked. And nowhere in the Bible does it say that these are the 144,000 witnesses. It says nothing about them being witnesses on there. Nothing about them sharing the gospel. Nothing about them doing any great feats. Nothing about them shutting the mouths of lions or going through fire or anything like that. It doesn't tell us any of those things. They're the 144,000. They're the 144,000, whatever they are, I don't know. Now, they very well might be witnesses. All we can be sure of, and we're going to look at them again when we get to chapter 14, all we can be sure of about these 144,000 witnesses is that they're men who are separated unto God in a special way. And we'll look at those that, a couple of ways, and we're going to look at that when we get to chapter number 14. And we know this about them. They survive the great tribulation. Why do they survive the great tribulation? Because they've been sealed by God. They've been, no, no harm can come to them. They're sealed by God, and 144,000 of them survive the, the uh, great tribulation. And they stand with Jesus on Mount Zion when he's back on this earth. Could be that they're just the male remnant of Jews that populate Jerusalem after the Great Tribulation, and they're sealed for that day. But really, the only thing that we know they do is that they survive. That's all we know. I actually, I don't think they are witnesses. And let me tell you why. Because how do the Jews get saved? During the Great Tribulation, they're still blind. And they're not saved until Jesus returns to the earth. And how are they saved? He pours out his spirit on them. He forces them to get saved. You don't like that? They're tough. They'll like it when it happens. But, but that's how they get saved. That's what the Bible tells us. He pours out his spirit on them. And then all of a sudden they're, they're, they're no longer blind and they see Jesus as their Messiah and they weep. They look at his scars and they weep because they're the ones who crucified him. Well, a lot of people say that you know, Jews are so bold and everything, they're going to make great witnesses to the Great Tribulation saints. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible either. How do the Great Tribulation saints get saved? And we're going to talk about them next week. 
actually we talked about them last time. We're going to talk about the church in heaven next week. But how do they get, how do they get saved? How do they get saved? You know what? I believe that most of the people who get saved in the tri Great Tribulation, and some of you probably in this room will get saved during the Great Tribulation. The reason they get saved is because they know the gospel. They just never have been born again. They've never been truly born again. And they get an alert on their phone. Ballistic missile heading your way. Take shelter. Take shelter. Because this is not a test. And you're either going to get serious about the Lord in those situations or, or else. I heard a story after 9-11. They interviewed two sons of a stewardess who was on that second plane that went into the towers. And this guy was a very successful businessman, Christian businessman. And the Lord told him that he had a task for him that he wanted him to be a stewardess. I mean, here's this guy. I mean, he's 30 years old. He's, a, he's making good money. And it's like the Lord called him to be a stewardess. And the boys were telling the story. And they said that he knew that at some point that God was going to use him in a powerful way. Those boys said that they had no doubt because they were the second plane, and the second plane knew that they were hijacked and they were going into that tower, that he got on that megaphone or microphone and he shared the gospel with those people going into that tower. And that they had no doubt that a lot of people got saved. They all knew they were going to die. You don't believe in the rapture? God might very well leave you here to witness once you get saved or if you're saved and you don't get raptured. I mean, God, I don't know how God's going to do it, but God's going to have his witnesses here. The great tribulation saints who get saved then will be great witnesses and they will save other people on this earth before they perish. So God has his plans. You know, I don't know, I don't know, you know, if you're a born-again Christian and you get left here and we're all gone and you're left here and you know you're born again, you might say, you know, God's left me here for a purpose. I mean, God, God can rapture everybody or he can leave 144,000 on this earth or he can leave a million on this earth to be his witness. I mean, he's in control of all of this. We don't know exactly how all of it's going to pan out. We do know it's all going to pan out for our good. So, time's short. It's really short. Those four angels are going to only hold on so long. Now, they can hold on as long as they want. But when the word comes, God's going to let them go. And those missiles are going to fly. And... Things are going to get really bad on this earth. Before he does that, I have no doubt 
He's going to seal the 144,000. They're someplace all over this earth. He's going to call the church back to heaven. And things are going to happen. And the Lord will be back soon. But in the meantime, you don't get anything else out of this lesson. Don't let anybody lead you down that path of replacement theology. Remember what God told Abraham. He promised Abraham in chapter 12, verse 3 of Genesis. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Replacement theology, the BDS movement, is the church, the organized church, cursing Israel. Balaam was a religious guy who cursed Israel. How did that work out for Balaam? He got destroyed. And you curse Israel, you'll be cursed too. Next week, we're going to look at the other group that God's going to prepare. They're not going to be on the earth. They're going to be in heaven. And they've got to be taken care of before the seventh trumpet is blown and the great tribulation begins. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll look at that next week. Father, we just thank you for uh, the material that you've given us today. And Lord, there's some serious lessons here to learn. One to... to Leave Israel alone. Let you deal with them. The other thing, Lord, is that time is short. Lord, that we all need to take our lives seriously, our relationship with you seriously, and prepare ourselves for the great days ahead, Lord. The great blessing and hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, if there's anyone in this room here today who, who's riding the fence, Lord, just touch them in a special way. Touch them with the gospel. Help them to see Jesus with their eyes. Help them to see that today should be the day of their salvation. It's so simple, Lord. You've made it so simple. All we have to do is to receive Christ, the gift of salvation. And you'll regenerate us, Lord. You'll save us, you'll sanctify us, you'll glorify us all through him. We thank you for his blood. We thank you for the great hope he gives us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.